Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, January the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am joined on today's podcast by Claire Fox, who at the time of recording, but not for much longer, is a member of the European Parliament for the Brexit Party for the North West England constituency. It is fair to say that she's unusual among members of Nigel Farage's party, as her political roots are on the left. They're actually on the far left in the form of her membership of the now-defunct Revolutionary Communist Party and her work with Living Marxism magazine. She is now the director of the Libertarian Forum, the Academy of Ideas, and the author of I Find That Offensive about identity politics and censorship. She was in Dublin yesterday to give a talk to the Institute of International and European Affairs on demystifying Brexit and identifying the sovereign origins of Britain's withdrawal. Claire Fox, you're very welcome. In just a few weeks' time, you're going to be defenestrated from the European Parliament. Is that an occasion you're looking forward to? Absolutely. Rather overdue for me, because when I stood in the European elections, I had hoped I'd be out by the end of October. So the fact that it's actually really going to happen now is a great joy to me. What's the experience been like? What's it been like going to Brussels and Strasbourg? I've actually found it... I thought that I would... Um, I knew everything that I could know about the European Union, but I've actually found that I've learned a huge amount while I've been there. I've learned that it's far more corrupting than I'd ever thought it would be and that it's vacuous. The Parliament itself just doesn't talk about politics in a way that is helpful. And I wasn't genuinely expecting that. So I I think a kind of rules-based organisation that just carves everything up is intellectually stultifying so I haven't corrupting corrupting in the the sense that you're treated as though you are the most important politician in the world you're Mm -hmm. given all of the kind of trimmings of as though as though what you say and think matters you're treated incredible with incredible respect but as though you're playing a meaningful role and there's a huge amount of perks that go with that as well and I, I, I realised that you kind of could imagine that as an MEP that you were in a powerful position mm. and therefore the corrupting influences a lot of people kind of believing that what they're doing is meaningful whereas actually when you pull back the layers and look at what the content of what any MEP's power is it's non-existent. So and then so that's what the vacuous part means so you, well, I'm you just think the whole surprised. thing is a kind of a I don't know some kind of an electoral Potemkin village then? It feels like that. That's exactly what it feels like. By the way, everyone's very nice. I'm not trying to be uh, rude unnecessarily. You know, it's not that the, my fellow MEPs from all around Europe and from different political parties are, are malicious or anything of that nature. But I just think the, the nature of the beast is that it doesn't allow fruitful political exchange. And the parliamentary discussions are not, don't feel like open political discussions. That's the point I'm making. Did you find out anything good? about the EU in this brief stay? Uh, um, you know, no, no. 
No, not. I, I mean, it's difficult because it, it just sounds so churlish. I mean, it's not as though I don't agree with some of the things that the European Parliament are arguing for. It's mm. just that I think that those discussions should be had out in nation states. I don't think it's appropriate to take them away from the democratic mandates of the different member states. And so it feel, so it, it would be wrong to say that everything is awful. I mean, it's a perfectly pleasant experience. I, honestly, as a sinecure, I could happily be there forever. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a perfectly pleasant experience. And, of course, there are Democrats throughout Europe. So one of the things I've most enjoyed is meeting MEPs from different parties in different countries and talking to them informally. But I've had to make approaches, you know, or it's been at that level rather than... Um, it is a bureaucratic machine. The way that debates are conducted is, is that time is carved out in advance to different political groups. All that has been organised behind closed doors. People are given very formalised sections of time to speak in with real limits on inter, in terms of interaction. So there's no sense in which an interesting point might be made by somebody from... Um, Spain or Hungary or Ireland that I then might want to interact with. You just can't, that's not the way it operates at all. You can't, in that sense, form any kind of meaningful dialogue with your fellow Europeans as MEPs. Now that you, now that the UK is leaving, do you think the project was, you know, do you think there was an original sin? Do you think it was a bad idea from the start or do you think it just went too far? I do think that there was a, there's a design flaw. It's not, it's not a, a project that can be easily reformed um, because the whole basis on which the European Union operates is to ring fence decision making from different demos of each member state. It's a way of saying there are certain decisions that are too important to be discussed in uh, different nation states and there's obviously a uh, the integration point that you make the kind of the, the increasing integration has increased it basically increased the number of decisions that are made behind the backs of the electorate, effectively. But the concept was wrong from the start. It's just yes. become more extreme. I, is, I think is, if is you look view. at all of the founding documents, they actually explicitly talk about the need to have a form of governance that is not interfered with by the problems of democracy. Therefore, it's an anti-democratic institution because they're you know the, the kind of understanding was well you know if you let people decide you might end up with you know fascism again do you see what I mean so it's like it's far better to have decisions made by those people who know best yeah and and in many ways you know the the Brexit party and the Brexit movement can be seen as a, as a revolt against elites and technocracy and things like that we might come to that in a minute but just listening to you there about sovereignty. Sovereignty means different things to different countries and different people within within different countries as well. So it means something different in Ireland from what it might mean in the UK, doesn't it? Because I think a lot of people, myself included, would say that, uh, yes, Ireland uh, ceded elements of sovereignty and has done so over the past few decades to the EU, but some of them were bits of sovereignty we didn't have in the first place. You know, we didn't have our own currency. We were linked to sterling before we, we joined the European Union. We were, we were so closely linked with the United Kingdom in terms of our economy being interwoven with it that arguably we didn't have as much sovereignty as we might have now when we've kind of broader economic links. So perhaps things work differently from smaller countries than for larger countries which feel that they can and perhaps should assert a, a different kind of sovereignty. Well, I, I, I think that sovereignty itself is both the same wherever you are, but I understand that people have a different relationship to it. So I've, um, I agree with you that smaller countries that feel as though their sovereignty has been compromised by bigger countries, um, Ireland and the UK, you've just 
said Ireland and Britain. But obviously, East European countries, you can understand, you know, with Russia breathing down their necks, as it were, and feeling as though they want to be taken seriously on the world stage. And actually, Ireland's had this as well. It's kind of a way that you can kind of uh, project yourself as a player. Absolutely. And, mm. and suddenly you kind of go mm. from small and unimportant to kind of, we're with the big guys now. But I, I personally think that sovereignty should not be compromised to anyone. And, you know, swapping the uh, compromises on sovereignty with the with Britain for that with Brussels doesn't seem to me to be striking at freedom. But is, is, is sovereignty really something pure in that sense? Is sovereignty not always something that's malleable and there are grey areas around it and there are compromises because all sovereign nations interact with other sovereign nations in alliances and, you know, co- collective yeah. interests of various So sorts. what I'm interested in is democracy and that's why to go back to that because part of sovereignty is popular sovereignty, is the, na- the nation state provides ordinary citizens it doesn't matter whether you're a cleaner or it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, running society or treated equally at the ballot box. And it's only through those nation, that national sovereignty that you become an equal, effectively, that you are treated with respect. Your vote, one person, one vote, is something that's been fought for very long and hard. And it's the compromise on that sovereignty. And that's why I think that, that, that I'm interested in. And so I think that even though uh, the people who run... Um, different countries can feel as though, well, you know, we're prepared to compromise a bit of our sovereignty in order to kind of get in there and kind of have a say in Europe. What that still does is treats the popular sovereignty with a degree of contempt. And I think that that's why the Take Back Control slogan had a resonance. And you mentioned my whole argument is that this was a revolt against technocracy and that people Mm. started to assert themselves or saw an opportunity or were given an opportunity actually to say actually we do count you know we're we control you you know your politicians you work for us type of thing so i mean in in relation to that um i think you were a very important figure within the brexit party the incredibly successful brexit party campaign in the european elections last year because you represented perhaps a different political tradition from the majority of the people who were standing for the brexit party and that you come from the left the election which has just occurred in the united kingdom saw i think sometimes a certain amount of shallow analysis about this red wall collapsing and a, a debate about whether that was because of brexit or is because of other factors um the the red wall collapsing was coming for a while, wasn't it? The traditional social democratic party of the left, the Labour Party, was losing its grip on those working class strongholds long before Brexit came to the top of the political agenda. Indeed, it has been uh, collapsing for some time, but the form that it took was a kind of apathetic disinterest and a lack of activity amongst working class people in the Labour Party, local groups or what have you, because they felt that they were more or less squeezed out. So there was a kind of sense in which... Uh, a very deep commitment to the Labour Party uh, by that red wall, as it were, uh, in the northern heartlands had been chipped away, ebbed away and so on and so forth. The greatest shock that happened in this election for many people um, was that those people actively went out and voted for the Conservative Party. That is actually a major collapse of the red wall. That is not a kind of... So, of course, it didn't just happen overnight. Mm. Brexit was the main feature of that, by the way. For I cannot emphasise to you enough how frustrating it has felt for so many people that having been asked to make an important constitutional decision and really believing that this constitutional decision mattered and that they mattered, 
that they have then been treated with all of the techniques that, I mean, actually the Irish are more too familiar with when a referenda happened in, in, in this country, uh, in the past over Europe, I mean, which is, you know, you're stupid, you're misinformed, you're racist, you're xenophobe and so on and so forth. And the frustration of it, you know, just the, but, but you asked us to vote, we voted, and now you're telling us we got it wrong. I mean, this can't be right. And it's built up and built up and built up. It's been totally infuriating. And this was I think there was two opportunities for people to kind of make their views clear that they hadn't changed their mind. One was the European election and the Brexit party benefited and this general election. And I think that the reason why it's become inevitable now that we are leaving in a few weeks' time is that in huge numbers, people broke from traditional party loyalties and voted in with a massive majority, the Conservative Party, not because they'd all become Conservatives but because they wanted to leave the European Union, as they had said they wanted to do three and a half years before. And even the most ardent Remainers in the UK suddenly went, oh. But the other part of that, it seems to me, I was talking to a few of our reporters, we kind of sent these people over on safari expeditions to various mm-hmm. parts of the West Midlands and the North East and, and thereabouts. And again and again, um, you heard people saying that it was a really difficult wrench for them that they to that their fathers and their grandfathers and their grandmothers had voted Labour and they came from mining families and they still hated Thatcher and all that kind of stuff, but that this was the moment at which they were going to make that break. And it was because of Brexit. And what what I thought I was hearing was a form of identity politics, that people's identity previously was working-class solidarity through the Labour Party and probably the trade unions and other institutions around that. And that had been replaced by a new identity politics, which is you're either a Remainer or a Lever, and in this case, they were Leavers. Uh, there's, there's some truth to that, but I, I, I think that that never, that was not an inevitability from the referendum. If the referendum's result had been enacted in 2016 with some good faith, then you would not have found people forging uh, identity groups in such a kind of unhelpful and divisive fashion. Mm. I mean... People assumed that if they voted in a referendum and it went one way, that that would be enacted and you wouldn't walk around saying, oh, you were a Mainer or a Lever. It it became a a form of identity because um, the people who voted Remain, instead of sort of, and many, by the way, the majority of people who voted Remain accepted the result. But as so many in the establishment told them, oh, it's not inevitable that even though we voted to leave the EU that we will, we're going to find a way to stop us leaving the EU, that consolidated in quite a, 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 an institutionalised fashion, what became known as Remainers. And they then attacked people who voted leave as the xenophobe, stupid, every single uh, insult you could get, which then meant people started to identify as leavers. You didn't have that before. It wasn't as though that was... No, not at all. Thing. In fact, opinion polls only yeah. a few years ago showed it's that it wasn't I'm... the most important item no, exactly. on the political it agenda. Wasn't. Exactly. It became that because it was mishandled by the very establishment they call the, the referendum in the first place because they tried to get out of it. And that has created a real problem in terms of British politics. But I don't think, I mean, I'm a great critic of identity politics, but I think it would be wrong to just see it as a form of identity that has got no substance to it. What I'm trying to say in terms of the break from the Labour Party is the Labour Party had done very little 
uh, by the way, to maintain any loyalty amongst those working class communities for supporting Labour. They were taken for granted. It was assumed they'd always vote Labour. They were, if you want, treated with a certain amount of contempt. Nobody ever bothered campaigning in those areas. It was just their Labour areas. That's it. You'll get the vote out. You know, it was that old, horrible expression, if you put a red rosette on a donkey, they'll get a vote, and so on and so forth. And I think what we need to emphasise here is that what happened in the referendum was that working class people found their agency again. That had been squeezed out. And agency in politics is key, it seems to me, to any kind of political change. So having found their agency, their voice, you know, they actually re-emerged, took themselves seriously. And so they've used their agency to vote for the Tory party. They they basically... and And actually, the Brexit party made a mistake, uh, as it were, uh, said nobody, a lot of these people won't vote for the, the, the Tories, they'd never vote for the Tories, they'll, they'll vote for the Brexit party. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was sceptical about that because I felt that that would be overridden by this desire to leave. And that's exactly what happened. People, uh, your reporters report very accurately. That was exactly what people were saying. And there was a kind of 20%, we were having 20% returns in the election of people saying they were undecided. And I said, they're not undecided. They're voting Tory. They're just not going to tell anyone. That's all that was happening in those in those working class areas. And that's exactly what happened. Um, people wanted to reassert their agency by saying, we made a decision, you have to enact it. Politics is on the line. Democracy is on the line. And in March last year, when I decided to, well, basically March, just because March the 29th was a significant date because we were meant to leave then, most of us who'd voted leave thought it was over, thought we'd lost. I mean, absolutely. I, was, I thought we'd lost. I, I, I mean, I said on TV on various things, that's it. We're not leaving. They've done it. I can't believe it. They've done it. There was a kind of atmosphere of despair and despondency and bitterness and resentment and I actually thought it was going to turn nasty and which is why I wanted to turn it into something positive which is why I stood for the Brexit party which I've never wanted to be an elected politician so I did that anyway then it kind of turned round and I think now people just feel thank goodness for that you know we've kind of saved that democratic moment because people were in danger of just thinking well you know if you can't change things through the ballot boxes we've always been t- well I hardly need say what that means. You remove the ballot box as a legitimate mechanism for social and political change. What are you left with? And either it's a major demobilisation of people away from politics altogether, or it's that they look to alternatives. And neither of those, it seemed to me, were very helpful. Can I ask you about your own your own political journey, yeah. which has its roots in <clears throat> the Trotskyist left in the 1980s, I suppose, um, the uh, Revolution- Revolutionary Communist Party, um, and then as, a, as an educator, uh, public intellectual, uh, broadcaster, and now for a brief period, an elected politician. It's quite a journey. There's a lot of, you know, we could spend an hour talking about it and we don't have the time to go into the various twists and turns of it. But I suppose, are you still a Marxist? Um, I've got a lot of respect for the Marxist philosophical tradition, but no, I, I, I think that, I think the most appropriate thing to say is that I don't think that revolutionary politics, um, as it was constituted when I was involved in Trotskyism, is the way that you would want to change politics today. I just don't think it would. Those days are over, I think. And I think the the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the, the notions of alternatives, meant that many of the traditional left-wing parties realised that to rethink everything. But it, mm. but it didn't mean that I thought that society was as good as it gets. 
you know, I didn't accept that there is no alternative thesis or that Francis Fukuyama's end of history. Mm-hmm. And I was, and still am, interested in social change. Um, but I, but I, I, I mean, I think that uh, Marx's philosophical understanding of change is hugely influential on my life, absolutely. And I consider myself to be on the left because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, she self-identifies as left, but really she's right-wing. And then when you say, well, why is she right-wing? It ends up being because she is Brexit, because she supports unconditional free speech, and those kind of like they're relevant. And you think, well, actually, those things used to be associated with the left. I mean, why? So what, what you could say is that a lot of things that... I've always believed, I've always been a supporter of um, self-determination and sovereignty and uh, been interested in people's realisation of their agency. I suppose the one of the theory. reasons I ask is just looking, you know, reading over the over, over the course of your career and, and that journey um, is that as a as a Marxist, presumably, or as a Trotskyist, one of, part of your key focus was on economics. And a lot of your writing and speaking over the last... 10 or 15 years have been about what people sim- simplify as calling things like the culture wars and issues around around culture and identity yeah. politics, which yeah. you mentioned. So I just wonder where you stand in economics now. I mean, we can talk about the identity thing, but it does, does strike me that, you know, economics still has a very important part to play in issues such as the changes which have occurred in those working class communities which you referred to in Northern England, the way in which people make a living, the way in which labour is organised, or in this case not organised, casualised labour, increased inequality between the very rich and the the very poor, all those kinds of issues. But I, I don't uh, I, I, I may be wrong here, but I haven't come across you writing as much about those issues. No, I don't. I don't write as much about them. But just to one clarification is is that I I suppose that when I was involved in um, Trotsky's politics, I was always very critical of a narrow economistic approach to politics, and I actually don't think that was a very. I think that a lot of the uh, the left got trapped in that. It would be kind of kind of a workerist economic approach, and I was always more interested in the broader political issues around things like racism, self-determination, uh, anti-imperialism, things like that. So, if you were, if you want, they were more the kind of cultural issues of their day. And people said, "Well, you're wasting your time over there, and what you should be talking about is the wages of nurses in the local hospital." Oh, class struggle. Class struggle. I'm one of the reasons I'm opposed to the EU is because I think it's a neoliberal club that represents globalisation at the expense of ordinary working people. I mean, that's one of that's the irony. That's one of my critiques as yeah. it goes. Nonetheless, I think that those things can take the form of, and this is genuinely my critique of contemporary left wing thinking, of just talking about working class people as though they're poor and hapless and need a kind of social worker intervention to support them. Whereas my view is that people have to organise themselves to improve the conditions of their own lives. And that part of that, by the way, is aspirational. And that can also clash, I think, with some um, some left-wing thinkers who kind of, uh, uh, I, I think, so overly, in my view, emphasise the kind of worst aspects of being poor. And therefore, for me, and what I've been trying to, Uh, achieve over the last 20 years actually is to create a space where people would gain the political confidence to re-emerge as a force in politics and as it happens and this might have been just one of those things that happens the EU referendum which I didn't call which was called by four reasons that were undoubtedly self uh, you know to do with the Tory party provided an opportunity for people to find their voice again. 
which is why I think it's been such a catastrophic error of judgment by the British Labour Party that when they found their voice, they were slapped down and told to shut up. I mean, that but, is the irony of it. Well, I mean, there, there are many ironies, it seems to me, in the way that Brexit has thrown established political structures, you know, up in the air and they've all fallen down again. One of the ones that seems to me, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about the Labour Party, but is that the Labour Party had the most left-wing um, political manifesto perhaps in its history, certainly for many decades. But they still got whacked for that. And one of the reasons they got whacked is, I mean, I know there's this ongoing debate about how much of it was Brexit, how much of it was was other things. But one of them was that people just didn't like the look of Jeremy Corbyn's anti-imperialism and some, some of the other elements. Well, it's undoubtedly the case that uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't necessarily won the arguments for that, by the way. And I wouldn't claim that I've won those arguments either. Um, I, I think that... Um, you can say that's his historical background, but he hasn't gone out and tried to convince people of those arguments on imperialism. That's just on that question. Mm. I think you're misassessing, though, why the support for Corbyn didn't hold up. There's two things to it. First of all, a lot of their his economic uh, policies over the last few years have been re- relatively popular, even amongst... I mean, they're not as far left as people make out, but that you know, they're, they're, there's a left wing program there. Mm-hmm. A lot of the nationalisation projects and so on. What seemed to have happened during the election um, was, uh, in terms of his economic program, was that they got they they went too far. Not in terms of offering a radical solution, but in being seen to be trying to buy off the voters, and people didn't believe them. And when you look at all of the interviews with people, they'll just say, well, you know, can't just come around here and talk about apple pie and you can have this and you can have that. You know, we're not idiots. Somebody's got to pay for it. And they, you know, so that that's not a rejection of a radical economic programme. Mm-hmm. That's a rejection of being treated for mugs, right, or, or not being serious politically about the economy. But the main thing you're misassessing, I think, is I... Brexit is the issue. And Jeremy Corbyn actually had bought himself amongst certain voters, a certain amount of respect for secretly being a lever. And in 2017, they voted for the Labour Party, leavers, voted for the working class leavers, traditional Labour Party voters, trusted Jeremy to deliver because they believed he was a lever. Because obviously, the one thing that Jeremy Corbyn and I have had in common for the last 25 years is the EU. And I mean, he's been far, he would have been far more outspoken than me, but I would have been clapping him. Right. So, I mean, everywhere you went, Jeremy Corbyn was talking about the problems of the EU. And then he becomes the leader of the Labour Party, the leader of the Labour Party during a period of the referendum. And he shuts up and then he plays a kind of ambiguous game. And then people think, well, yeah, he's secretly a lever and him and Seamus are secretly levers. And maybe they will take us out. And I was being constantly told by people in the Labour Party, don't worry, Claire, they believe in a no-deal Brexit. They're just like you. They can't say it, but that's what they think. And there was kind of like a secret cabal and world of people believing that. But he probably couldn't say it because the majority of Labour Party members are... So this is what's called political opportunism and cowardice. If you if you actually run a party in which you decide that the most important one of the most important issues of your life is something you can't say because then you won't be running the Labour Party, what does that tell you? So this this hardly so uh, gradually I've watched over the last couple of years as the Labour Party have become p- 
pulled apart by this, are we a middle-class Remain party, are we a working-class party, are we leavers, are we Remainers, what are we? That you can have the most exciting economic project programme going, you can have all sorts of things on, but if the overwhelmingly important issue of the day is whether you can deliver the Brexit vote or not, and by the way, they could have come out as a Remain party, I'm not. you could do either one, um, and you don't do it, this means that Corbyn's reputation as being somebody that you can trust, as somebody that has got integrity, mm-hmm. a man of principles, is shod. And he looked shod- weak. He did look weak. Exactly. And yeah. also, therefore, mm-hmm. when you say this is a man of principle who you can trust, everybody just goes, well, he could- no. And so consequently, when people say it wasn't a rejection of Corbynism just per se, because that people was conservative or they didn't like the look of Corbynism economically. It was the whole package. And then just finally on the anti-imperialism thing, I think one of the things that you could say is there's been a lot of discussion about patriotism recently, but one of the problems was that, that it was the Labour Party, that, not Corbyn himself, but it was senior members of the Labour Party, big cultural figures in the Labour Party who effectively attacked the Brexit voters being xenophobic, right-wing, ultra-right, uh, alt-right, racist and so on, and talked about people who voted leave in such contemptuous fashion. And that utter kind of uh, disdain for the value, and, and of course the immigration issue, which was concern about immigration but not anti-immigrant but was then discussed as though people were anti-immigrant in a crass way and made out that they were all knuckle-draggers and so on and so forth. That came from the Labour Party. And so that sort of sense of an of a, of a political elite that had no, even weren't even prepared to sympathise or empathise or think about or show any regard for what people's concerns were. And then this idea that, oh, well, Corbyn doesn't care about that because he won't sing God Save the Queen and he thinks that we're all, you know, that because I, I'm proud of my country that I must be a racist. And so well, because one of, the, one of the things that our reporters, one of our reporters brought back was something which I hadn't expected at all or it just hadn't occurred to me as my own stupidity probably, was in, in the Midlands that there was still some that there was bad feeling about Corbyn's position on Irish republicanism and the IRA because of the bombs in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies. And listening to that and knowing you were coming in, I was thinking about because you've had your issues around statements that you'd made yeah, on the yeah, Warrington yeah. bombing in particular, and some of the things that you've said about that. And in a way, this goes back to the anti-imperialism part of this, this discussion. You would have had a certain view on Irish self-determination and the what you would have described as the struggle for Irish freedom at a certain point. Do you still have those, and how does that fit with? Um, the the very intense debate which has gone on over the last year or so about uh, sovereignty in these islands and the relationship between the countries. Well, I mean, it, it, it was relatively straightforward, which was that I was a supporter of Irish freedom and self-determination for the Irish people. And there was a, an intense and bloody war going on in the six counties. And there was British troops on the streets of, you know, Derry and Belfast. And there was a civil rights uh, movement that was then brutalised and internment and all of these things that happened and I grew up with that. And because yeah, you come, you have an Irish background. I have yourself. an Irish background mm. and I follow. I mean, you know, and we argued about it. It wasn't like I came from a straightforward nationalist background, but we argued about it in the family. But I followed it very carefully, and then you know, as I got involved in politics, I I, I became more involved in that. And um, those arguments were definitely not won in, in on the you know on. The mainland, as they say, um, in, in terms of persuading people that that, that Irish people had a legitimate uh, cause that they were involved in, that there was a brutal side to the British Army's presence in Northern Ireland. People didn't accept that. Do you see what I mean? It was two tribes 
Uh, well, they, they might have pointed out that there were a million unionists who wished to remain part of the United Kingdom as well. Yeah, yeah. But there was all sorts of arguments. What I'm saying is it was presented very much as though there was two tribes that you couldn't understand fighting each other, terrorists and murderers, and the British Army were the peacemakers. Yeah, I'm just crudely putting it. Mm. And I'm saying that was not the story I accepted, right? But it's not. that was never dealt with. Of course, the war ended. The war ended with the Good Friday Agreement, and I accepted that. And mm. and in the end, that was what happened. And politics moved on, and I but moved on. But obviously, on, I didn't on think- this side of the IRC, we're not particularly shocked by the idea that people among us, some of them supported the armed struggle of the IRA, and, and yeah, some yeah. didn't. And as you say, we've we've moved on. But that, uh, if you talk to people in the Republican movement, they will say that struggle continues, and they're now they're they're campaigning very increasingly strongly, partly on the back of Brexit for for a Poland Irish unity. Well, would, are, would, are, would your previous position cause you to support Irish unity? Well, I, well, first of all, I'm certainly not opposed to Irish unity. I mean, I would have thought that Irish unity was an aspiration of the the the. Southern Irish state even to this day is it the idea of Ireland being a full country yes but uh, quite a lot of people have tried to in a very conspiratorial fashion say to me oh so you support Brexit because you really want a united Ireland you want the whole border issue to uh, um, as it were, escalate into a united Ireland issue I mean that's a step too far for me I never got that far in my thinking I think that it's being a disruptor though but if you think about the irony of this situation is that I was you know done over for views that I had in Ireland. As I studied as a Brexit party, I, it became a matter of um, great excitement that I'd had those views and I was asked to denounce those views and I said I wouldn't denounce those views because they were held in good faith at the time. And I'm not somebody who got involved in politics to start squirming my way out of what I believed in good faith at the time because I think what I believed at the time was right. But I don't... It's not now, right? But, but w- would you support a border... I mean, do you think a border poll now is a good idea? I, um, I'm not sure about... I mean, I, I, I can see that... It, I can see it's one of the, the issues that's coming up. I think the... The recent skirmishes around the black and tans are almost amusing. You know, people don't know how much history has been forgotten or not, Mm. or what you are allowed to say. But what I was going to say was some of the greatest pro-EU voices that I have come across since I've been in Brussels are Sinn Féin. And everybody is quite happy to have Sinn Féin in the UK press. I mean, this is an irony that I should think that Corbyn might have pointed out. You know, everybody says... Corbyn's views on Ireland are very dodgy. And some people will say, and Claire Fox's views on it, totally dodgy, right? But we've got to listen to the Remain voices in Northern Ireland. Uh, what? And then, and suddenly, what people who were actually associated with the movement that was involved in a conflict are allowed to talk on the issue of Brexit without anybody mentioning their past, except those people who are uh, 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 pro-Brexit. So it's one of life's little ironies. And what I'd say is is that Sinn Féin should be held to account for what they say now. And I therefore would have an argument with them about Remain, and <laughs> if you see what I mean, and, and, and other things they might say. So I think that dragging up people's previous political affiliations, there's nothing wrong, one should be held to account. Mm-hmm. But when it's used to just simply discredit politics of now, uh, I think it's very dangerous. Very last question. Our producer is waving at me to stop, but I do need to ask you this. What does the post-Brexit UK, after uh, four or five years of a Boris Johnson government, look like in 2023-2024? I honestly don't know. One thing that's really extraordinary, though, is, is that the Conservatives have been voted in by voters who they are not used to dealing with. And if Boris Johnson thinks that in three years' time he can have his local um, members of parliament 
at the Durham Miners Gala having sold them out or um, having not actually done something about uh, the Northern Heartlands. <laughs> I'd like to see that confrontation taking place. In other words, the Tory party are not the Tory party anymore. They can't be. And if they... And so consequently, political realignment is happening. That's what I'd say. I think the Labour Party are going to become a rump, probably, have actually at the moment. Uh, the Conservative Party will have to change. I don't know whether they can survive that change. I do think that the key thing that's happened is that psychologically, democracy won in that general election, that people feel a great sense of relief that they weren't, their democratic vote wasn't betrayed. And that therefore gives me reason for optimism, not because I trust the Tories, but because I think now people have got a taste of democratic change and some exciting things might happen as a consequence. Claire Fox, thanks for coming in. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter at hlinehan. Uh, until the next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.